I suppose some people might say if only God were to become a man and to let us know what he's thinking. And I suppose some of us will say God did become a man. And as we study through the Gospel of Luke, knowing that Jesus is the God-man, fully God and fully man, we see glimpses into the very heart of God in the words of Jesus Christ. Our text today is from Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 31 and going through verse 35. Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 31. On that very day, some Pharisees came, saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As we examine this, I'm going to structure the text around three of the statements of Jesus. First of all, go tell that fox. Secondly, I must journey. And then thirdly, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Go tell that fox. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to Jesus, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. So here they come and they approach Jesus. Perhaps they were sincerely caring for Jesus' safety and thus warning him. Perhaps it was a Pharisee such as Nicodemus. Nicodemus may have cared enough to warn Jesus, but we don't know, do we? Perhaps they were just trying to get Jesus to go underground and thus cease to be an influence. And then get Jesus afraid of Herod then they can get Jesus maybe to hole up in a cave or on a mountain and he'll stop preaching all of this nonsense to the people. We don't know. Perhaps what they told about Herod was true. That Herod was seeking to kill Jesus. Perhaps it wasn't true. We don't know. Now, Jesus did have a little bit of a history with Herod. And this is Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king who sought to slay Jesus when he was but a babe. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great had passed away by this time. So we see a little bit of a before, during, and after regarding Jesus' relationship with Herod. Before, 
this statement in our text here. Herod was haunted by the death of John the Baptist. Remember, he had had John killed at the instruction of Salome's mother. But Herod was haunted by that, and he feared that Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated. In Mark chapter 6, verse 16, it says, But when Herod heard, he said, This is John, whom I beheaded. He had been raised from the dead. Well, there's also already a little bit of a history that Jesus had warned people about Herod. In Mark 8.15, Jesus charged the people saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And then during Jesus' ministry, here's an interesting point. In God's sovereignty, it was Herod's money that was supporting the ministry of Jesus. Consider Luke chapter 8, verse 3. It speaks here of some women who were disciples of Jesus. It says, And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others who provided for Jesus from their substance. Have you ever wondered where Jesus got his funds? It was coming from the coffers of Herod. Through Herod's steward, and then the wife of Herod's steward, who was then passing the money on to Jesus. So Herod, this wicked man, was supporting the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, being the really good politician that he was, wouldn't do anything to upset his base. Right? How about wrong? Go tell that fox, he says of Herod. Well, what about after this point in our text? We have a text which shows that Herod seemed to be intensely curious about Jesus. And then he treated Jesus abominably, though. In Luke chapter 23, there's the account there of Pilate recognizing that Jesus was in Herod's jurisdiction. And so sending Jesus over to Herod, and Herod being interested and glad because he wanted to see some miracle performed by Jesus. So he had heard that Jesus was doing all these wonderful things, hadn't seen it, and he wanted to see it. But Jesus was silent, refused to answer Herod. And then Herod, with his men of war, his soldiers, treated Jesus with contempt. They mocked him, they spat on him, they put the crown of thorns on his head, and they beat him. And then that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends, and they had formerly been enemies. So Jesus had a history with Herod. And now add this to the history. He said to them, Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, and tomorrow on the third day I shall be perfected. Jesus sends a powerful reply. Go tell that fox. A fox. This is from the Tyndale Bible Dictionary. A fox is a small, wild, carnivorous, dog-like mammal. Jesus says, Go tell that small, wild, carnivorous, dog-like mammal. Then the connotation of that term, fox, this would be more of a denotation, the direct 
definition of this particular animal. The connotation or the idea that Jesus was getting at when he says, go tell that fox, is go tell that crafty, sly, unscrupulous little schemer, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. What's he saying here? He's saying, I fear you not, Herod. I care not that you have the power of life and death, because I am Messiah, as testified by my works. I heal. I cast out demons. I am the Messiah of God. And I am on God's timetable, not yours, Herod. I'm not going to die a day sooner than God has decreed. And he mentions the third day here. I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. The third day I shall be perfected. Probably an allusion to the resurrection. This I do now. These miracles. Then I I will travel to Jerusalem and I will perish there. But that third day I will rise. I will be perfected. Go tell that fox. But then he says, I must journey. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Jesus knows his destiny, doesn't he? He knows that he has come to die for the world. He knows exactly when and exactly where he's going to die. When his journey to Jerusalem is accomplished, then he will be crucified in that central city. That city which represents the entire nation. That city which represents the nation that has stoned and executed the prophets of God, as Jesus was pointing out, and had recently even lopped off the head of John the baptizer. So Jesus knew both the time and the place of his death. How did he respond to that? What was the result of that knowledge? It was a fearlessness. He was fearless of Herod. Oh, Herod's trying to kill me. But no, I know my destiny. I know that I am bound to die. And I know that my Father has decreed the time and the place of my death. And Herod, you cannot lay a hand upon me. You cannot touch a hair of my head until God has decreed that I die. How about us? Is it the case that God has destined, decreed the time and place of our deaths? 
God is a sovereign God. He is the God who kills and makes alive. Look to Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. We have to understand the whole picture of God from the Scriptures. We must know the whole counsel of God. This is part of the whole counsel of God. God is sovereign over life and over death. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. Now see that I, even I am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. That's a sovereign God speaking. He's saying there, if I want you alive, you will be alive. If I want you dead, you will be dead when I want you dead. That's God. Now consider this. What would you do if you knew the exact time and place of your death? What would you do? Would you do everything in your power to avoid that place around that time? (laughs) What would you do? Well, it's not exactly the same, but... You know, there was a man named Jonah that tried to flee from God. He tried to avoid going to a particular place that God wanted him to go to. What happened? He got tossed off the ship, landed in the water, swallowed by a great fish, and it vomited up, vomited him up, probably on the very shore of the place where he was supposed to be going to. <laughs> After he repented. What about Ahab? Do you remember Ahab's death? Ahab was the guy that wanted a vineyard. Nabal's vineyard. He wanted this vineyard. He was a king. He went, offered to buy it, and the guy said, no, you know, this has been in my family, and it's my property I don't wish to sell. So what did he do? He said, okay, I respect your rights. I'm, I'm pleased with that. No, he went. He laid down on his bed and he pouted. He went into depression because he couldn't get what he wanted. Well, he had a kind and a loving wife, didn't he? Jezebel. She saw that he was pouting and said, what's wrong? And he told her. And then she went and pulled some strings to get get the owner of the vineyard killed. And then Ahab was happy. And he said, okay, I get what I want. And he went in and took over. Well, God sent word then to Ahab through Elijah, didn't he? And in 1 Kings 21.19, we have this recorded. God speaking to Elijah, you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. And Ahab was probably thinking, okay, guess where I'm never going to go? I am never going to go anywhere near that place. But then what happened? There was a war. There was a battle. Ahab was wounded in his chariot. He was killed. 
And in 1 Kings 22:38, we read, Then someone washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, while the harlots bathed according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken. The prophecy was fulfilled. He couldn't do anything to avoid it. Jesus was fearless in the face of the threat of Herod because he knew when and where he was to die. And it was not then and it was not directly by Herod's hand. What would you do? Does God have our days written in his book? Does it not say that in Psalm 139? That all your days, they were written, or all my days were written in your book before any of them even happened. They're all written in God's book. And he knows each one of them. There was a man that you're probably all familiar with. His name was Thomas Jackson. You're probably familiar with him by a different name, a nickname, Stonewall Jackson. He got that nickname at Battle of Bull Run, also called Manassas. In July 1861, there was a brigadier general, it was... Bernard E. B., who instructed his regiment, look at Jackson. There he stands like a stone wall, rally behind the Virginians. Why could he stand like a stone wall in the midst of battle with bullets zipping all around him? What were his own words about that? He wrote this, My religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time of my death. (laughs) He knew that God was sovereign over his days and that no bullet could take him before God planned. And that gave him fearlessness in the face of battle. Of course, you probably know that he was accidentally shot by his own forces. His arm was amputated, and then eight days later he died from pneumonia, the complications of the surgery and the injury. And he died on a Sunday, May 10th, 1863, and he said, I always wanted to die on a Sunday. He loved the Lord's Day. So, what should we take from the example of Jesus here and the example of this godly man in this instance of recognizing God's sovereignty over the time and place of death, we too should be fearless in the face of opposition, in the face of trials, knowing that we will not die one second sooner or one second after the exact time that God has decreed. God has written our days in His book. Now, this doesn't mean that we that we be foolish. It doesn't mean that we tempt God. 
by being disobediently foolish and negligent with our health or our safety. But what does it mean? It means that if we take this to heart, God has numbered our days, then what do we fear in the threats of men? What do we fear in the threat of disease? God has numbered our days. He knows. And we are in His hand. This I've spoken so far to Christians. If you're not a Christian, you had better fear. Because God has numbered your days. And that means you're going to die. And that means if you die before you have repented and believed in Christ and rested in Him for your salvation, that you will face God as a wrathful judge and not as a loving Father. It means that since God has numbered your days, you may say, I'm young. The average lifespan in the United States of America is some 79 years old, so I've got a long way to go. But, oh. <laughs> God may have decreed that when you walk out of this building and you're in your car, that you will die at that moment. We don't know, do we? I don't know about you, God hasn't told me the day and the time. The time and the place. But if we are His, we can live fearlessly if we take this to heart. If we are not His, this should drive us in repentance. Begging Him for forgiveness. And we have the perfect example of Christ trusting in the plan of His Father. Go tell that fox, I must journey Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Verse 34, back in Luke chapter 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's take some of these references and these statements one by one and try and determine what they mean in the context. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I don't believe that he's just speaking about the one city, Jerusalem. I know he's not talking about the buildings. Okay? So this is definitely a figure of speech. At the very least, it's talking about the the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But I don't just think it's talking about the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I don't just think Jesus is referring to the people of Jerusalem here. Because it wasn't just Jerusalem that had rejected the Lord. It wasn't just Jerusalem that had turned time and time again from the covenant and violated the covenant. It was the people, the nation. Nor was it just the leadership. It is possible the word Jerusalem could be used to refer to the leadership. Sometimes we would use the word Washington, right? To talk about the government of the United States. We're not talking about the the actual city, Washington, D.C. We're talking about the leadership. 
It is possible that that could be the case, but I don't think so. Because again, it wasn't just the leadership. Although the leadership, those were the ones that primarily rejected Jesus, but there were also many people. Remember, even the people in Jesus' own hometown, Nazareth. They're in the synagogue. They start to cast him off a cliff after his first sermon. You know, those of you who are going into ministry, how would you like that? You preach your first sermon and your congregation there tries to throw you over a cliff. <laughs> you want to be a preacher? You want to be a prophet? <laughs> I don't think it was just the city. I don't think just the leadership. I think Jesus is using the term Jerusalem here to represent the nation in general. There's a nation of Israel that was covenanted with God. The people, in general, covenanted with God. And they were the ones that had violated the covenant. They were the ones that had turned time and time again and God called them back to repentance and they turned from Him and worshipped idols. He called them back to repentance and they turned and worshipped idols. He sent messengers to them and they stoned them and treated them poorly and executed them and sawed them in half. Time and time again, this takes place. So here Jesus stands and He cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Speaking of the people. And that term, we call that a double vocative. Vocative, voc, sounds like voice. It's got first few words there, Latin root, I believe. Double vocative, meaning he says this twice over and over again. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This would have been, it would have been a mournful tone here probably used by Jesus. Probably not a wrathful or a hateful condemnation based on the context here, but a mournful tone. It would have been like David when his beloved son Absalom rebels against him and tries to overthrow him and he says, oh, and at Absalom's death I believe it was, oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son. Absalom, Absalom. Thus we hear Jesus here, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's why it's called a lament in the commentaries when they describe this passage. And he's speaking about this city as it were to represent the people. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Here's the charge. It's the charge of murdering the mouthpieces of God. Viciously and rebelliously, wickedly slaying the very people that God sent to call them to repentance and bring them back to Him. And then we have these incredibly touching words. A statement, I believe here, directly from the heart of God. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. I believe Jesus here is speaking as the, the mouthpiece of God, as the prophet of God. I don't think Jesus is saying, how often did I in my ministry over the past 18 months try and gather you together, but you were not willing? No, I think this is the very heart of God crying out, over centuries and centuries, how often had he called his people to repentance and to come back to him? And they had rejected him, and then they'd come back for a time and then rejected him again, over and over and over again. 
He called out to them to come back to Him and to worship Him and to be blessed and to be filled. I think Jesus is showing us the very heart of God here toward this disobedient, covenanted nation of people. And I must say, as we consider this, this isn't an isolated text. This isn't the the one time we hear this type of, of terminology and this type of plea or statement from God. Let's walk through a few. Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning with verse 28. Deuteronomy 5, beginning with verse 28. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us through several texts here. And I know, I know for many of you that this is going to bring up a lot of questions. Because we've got some statements here that when we consider the sovereignty of God and God's sovereignty over salvation and God being in the heavens and doing whatever He pleases, such as Psalm 115, verse 3, then we consider these statements by God as well. And I hope it brings up lots of questions. And I hope that you will really ponder this and wrestle with this as well. But let's see. Deuteronomy 5, 28 and 29. Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. This is the recounting of Sinai and the giving of the law and the the mountain thundering and smoking and the people's response to that. This is being recounted here in Deuteronomy. I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. The Lord speaking. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. That's God saying that. (laughs) Oh, that they had a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that it might be well with them and their children forever. Psalm 81, 10-14 Psalm 81, beginning with verse 10. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people would not heed my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. We see it again here, don't we? The very heart of God. Oh, that my people would turn and walk in my ways. Look also at Isaiah 48, 17 through 19. Isaiah 48, 17-19 through 
Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants also would have been like the sand and the offspring of your body, like the grains of sand. His name would have not been cut off nor destroyed from before me. We see these statements over and over again, don't we? God just saying, Oh, oh, that my people had obeyed me. And if they had obeyed me, they would have been blessed. I would have blessed them. Those were the terms of the covenant. If you obey me and are faithful to me, then I will bless you. But if not, I will curse you. The people knew that and they agreed to that in advance. Those are the terms. They disobeyed over and over again and God cries out and says, Oh, that they had obeyed me. Again, I I believe the scriptures teach that God is sovereign. I believe that the scriptures teach that God is sovereign over the process of salvation. I don't have time to defend that in all its detail. That's not the subject of the text. But when we talk about things like people being dead in trespasses and sins, I believe that means that they don't have life to be able to choose God until God gives them the ability to do so. Or when it says in Romans 3, there are none who seek after God. That's speaking about all those who have not yet been saved or regenerated by God. But at the same time, I must be faithful to the scriptures and I must recognize these texts. But we see here the heart of God. Now, I must point out as well that these particular texts are speaking about a unique people, the people of Israel. That is the context of all these, is it not? That is the one people that God has covenanted with as a nation in history. He hasn't covenanted with the United States of America. We're not the specially covenanted nation of God. We have no reason to think so. No scripture teaches us such. As a matter of fact, we're in a new covenant and it teaches us that God is not dealing with nations of people as he did under the old covenant and with Israel specifically. Now, I'm going to go into this in a little more depth. I do believe there's going to be revival amongst the people of Israel. The actual people of Israel. Romans 9-11 through 11 speaks about that. But, God deals more at the level of the individual. In the original covenanted nation of Israel, there were both believers and non-believers who were in covenant with God. Anybody that was a part of that nation, anybody that was born into that nation, anybody that joined that nation, was in covenant with God, whether they were saved or whether they were not saved. Now there are only believers who are in covenant with God. Hebrews chapter 8, I think makes that very clear when it talks about that it's not like the old 
covenant, the covenant that I've made, but in this one, I will write my laws on their heart. I will be their God. They will be my people. They will not say to one another, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest. That's the new covenant. Anybody that's in covenant with God now, in that new covenant sense, is a believer. And those are people from all nations. All those who are of faith, they're blessed with faith for Abraham, it says in Galatians chapter 3. Why do I bring this out? I, I bring it out because, you know, if we're, if we're really wrestling with this, if, if, uh, if you believe in the doctrines of grace, so-called, sometimes called Calvinism, I don't like that terminology, okay, so much, but the doctrines of grace are basically that God is sovereign over salvation, then you believe that God has chosen people to salvation. And there are others who have not been chosen to salvation. And that that was God's plan and his, his desire from all eternity. But then we have this statement that Jesus makes. The very heart of God, how often I wanted to gather you together, but you were not willing. But you were not willing. What does that indicate there? If they had been willing, God would have gathered them in. But they were not willing. But at the same time, Jesus is weeping. It's a lament. And I believe it is showing the heart of God towards these people. Like all of these texts that we've read, and God saying, oh, that my people would obey me. And there were believers and non-believers in that group. Like I said, I hope this brings up lots of questions. I can't answer them. I can't answer all these for you. It, it kind of reaches a point where we say, this is what the scriptures say. But it's both of these. And that's as far as we can go with it at times. It's like the sovereignty of God and our responsibility. If God is sovereign over all things, then how are we responsible for sin? What do the scriptures say? It says that God is sovereign, but yet we're responsible. That's what it says. <laughs> how it all fits together, I don't know, but I know what I ought to do. I ought to seek to please God by obedience unto Him. And I ought never to say, God made me do it. That's what the scriptures teach. Thus it is here. And, and this, uh, this picture, have you, ever seen, have you ever seen a hen with a little brood of chicks? Little fuzzy yellow or white balls of fluff running around? Yellow, white, black, and white. And there's the mother, and they're all out there, scratch, 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 and the little ones are all around it, and then all of a sudden uh, the mother senses some kind of danger. Maybe, maybe the hound dog starts to walk by or something, and cluck, 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 and boom, there they all come. And she opens up, and they all nestle underneath, and then she tucks down on them, and there she is. And what's she saying? She's saying, over my dead body will you get my chicks. you got to go through me if you're going to touch them. That's the picture here. How often God wanted to gather them together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. God saying, if you, had, if you had come in, if you had repented, if you had obeyed, if you had met the covenant, 
I would have gathered you in and people would have had to go through me to get to you. They would have had to taken me out before they could get you. We have this beautiful terminology in the scriptures about under the shadow of your wings. I think it's the same picture here. Also, uh, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz speaking to Ruth, he says, The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. The Psalms, like Psalm 91, verse 4, He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. And over and over in the Psalms, under the shadow of your wings, the shadow of your wings, it's a picture of safety. The protection of the mother bird. And our text said, this is what God wanted to do with them, but they were not willing. They were not willing. Isaiah 65, 2, God says, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. God saying, I've stretched my hands out to them. I've called them to come in. But they've rebelled against me time and time again. Oh, the long-suffering of God. The long-suffering. The Lord, Lord, merciful and gracious. Long-suffering, slow to anger. Abounding in mercy and kindness. Ezekiel 33.11 Say to them as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? It's the heart of God. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Turn. And live. Oh, but Jesus proclaims as a prophet because they had rejected him, God again, and this time rejected the very Messiah, the very Son of God. So he says, See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, You shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Your house is left to you desolate. Symbolically, that explosively took place in 70 AD. When Titus, the Roman general, came in with the Roman army and flattened the temple. Destroyed the temple. And the people of Israel were again subjugated. Their house was left to them desolate. But Jesus says, Assuredly, I shall I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, remember Jesus when he went into Jerusalem called the Triumphal Entry. There he was riding on the, the colt of the donkey. The people threw their cloaks down and palm branches and waved them. And what did they say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Quoting that from the Psalms. But I don't think this is referring to that. I don't think so. Because what is he saying? He's saying, your house is left to you desolate. 
you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's prophesying there that their house is left to them desolate, that because of their covenant breaking over and over and over again, that God once again is removing his hand of any protection and favor from them. And I believe that, as I said, in 70 AD, that took place symbolically and even physically with the temple being destroyed. And what happened there, even when he came in after that triumphal entry, it was but a few days and he was crucified. So I don't think he's speaking here about that, but I think he is speaking about a time coming again in which there will be a revival amongst the people of Israel and in which they will see Christ in which they will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I believe Romans chapter 11 speaks to that. When it says there, And thus all Israel shall be saved. And I do believe that is speaking about a great revival amongst the ethnic people of Israel in that context. Uh, Throughout Romans 11 there, throughout Romans 9 through 11, the term Israel is used over and over and over again, and it's used to describe the ethnic people of Israel. The Apostle Paul is saying, I have great grief in my heart for my people, Israel. And he's not talking about great grief in his heart there for the elect of spiritual Israel. He's talking about the ethnic people of Israel there. And, and that's the context. And if, if you want to walk through some time, you can see, I believe, over and over and over again that Israel is spoken of as the ethnic people of Israel. And then it gets there in Romans 11 and it says, and thus all Israel shall be saved. It talks about the, the olive branch, the Gentiles being grafted in, but that God also being able to re-graft in the people of Israel. And thus we look forward to a glorious revival amongst those people. What a glorious thing. God in His promises, in His faithfulness, and yet, even though their house was left to them desolate, yet, there will be that revival and God will bring some back in again. A great revival. The majority of an entire generation, I believe, brought back in. And I believe it is that time spoken of here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what do we see here? What are some things we can draw from this? As as I said, you know, there, there are some things that are more difficult to sort out in the Scriptures. And... God's desire for somebody to do something, but then them not being willing, and so God not getting his desire in that sense is is one of those things that can be somewhat difficult to sort out when we're talking about a great and a glorious and a sovereign God. But the scriptures do say that God does whatever he pleases, and I must say as I look at this text that God was doing what he wanted to do in the sense of they have been given the choice and they have not come back and thus they are being condemned. But we see here at the same time the grief of God in that, that they have not repented and come back. 
What do we learn from this? We should have the heart of Jesus even toward those that are under judgment by God. Our hearts should be melted into tears when we see people die and they have not repented and we know that they are doomed to destruction. We should never say, we should never think, we should never feel, even in the deepest recesses of our heart, go to hell, Jared Logner, for your actions in murdering all those people. Go to hell, Ellen DeGeneres, for your homosexuality and promotion of that. Go to hell, Amagenadot, for your terrorism and your hatred of Israel. I hope Kim Jong-il is in hell because of his tyranny and despotism. No, no, no. We should never, never think that. God, the sovereign God of the universe, will do rightly. And He will judge those who have not repented. But for us, it is to follow the example of Christ and to weep. Because here's a fact. If we point the finger outward, the finger of damnation, and desiring for all these people out here to go to hell who are murderers and homosexuals and terrorists and despots, and to be consistent, we better start pointing the finger inward at people who are proud and who are inconsiderate and who are lazy and who are gluttons and who tell little white lies. Because what does the scriptures, what do they teach? The wages of sin is death. Which sins? The big ones? The wages of sin is death. Yes, I do believe that there is greater punishment in hell for greater quantities of sin and even greater atrocities of sin. Yes, I do believe that there are sins that have a, a, a greater mass effect upon humankind. We must not deny that. But at the same time, how many sins does it take for someone to go to hell? It is but one. And if our attitude is an attitude of desiring to see people damned in hell, then we need to consider whether we have been embraced and gathered under the wings of the very Son of God and God our Father. For when He has done that, we have the heart of Jesus. Not always. Yes, we can sin. Yes, we can fail. Talked about that in Sunday school. (laughs) We'll never be perfect in this life. But what is our heart? What is our heart? So we fly for refuge under the wings of God. And we don't sit under those wings chirping and cursing at all the wicked people out there who haven't flown for refuge. But we desire, we pray 
that God would bring more under His wings. And that He would work and revive, restore, grant repentance to many unto salvation. And as the Scriptures teach, that is the heart of God. He desires for people to be saved. Let us desire this as well. Let's pray. Father, help us to love and desire to see people in the safety and the refuge of your wings. Help us to be grieved when we see people continuing in sin. And Yes, while we take a stand against the sin and while we abhor wickedness, but may we never reach the point where we're desiring the damnation of your enemies. Father, may we desire for them to be saved And then if they are not, may we say, O Lord, they are in your hands and you will do justly. And so we acknowledge your justice. We acknowledge your righteousness. But may you truly give us hearts like Christ to be able to lament and weep when we see people come into judgment. And Father, may you give us boldness and courage as we know if we are in Christ that you have appointed that time, that day, and that we'll not die one day sooner or later. So may we live life to the fullest for your glory. Being responsible, being diligent, but being faithful even in the midst of persecution. May we not just sit back and be comfortable and Never take righteous risks for the glory of your kingdom because we fear death. No, may we wade into the fray and stand in the midst of the battle with courage. And we rejoice, Father. We praise you that you are the God of revival. And we look forward to the time when you will restore many in Israel. They will be revived and be saved. May you be praised and glorified and lifted up in our hearts. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.